I wasn't going to start here, but I thought about it as we were mentioning who was in our prayers. And uh, I know that I've said a lot that that five minutes seems to me, for me, often the biggest teaching of the whole morning. Uh, It's so sobering for me somehow to listen. Whatever I think isn't going exactly right in my life, this didn't work out, that didn't work out, this, you know, was supposed to arrive in the mail, where is that email, where is this, where is that. Most things pale when you start to hear what's happening to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And uh, it's happening to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so all the time. You know, that we get out of bed in the morning and we go about our business as if the whole world isn't in terrible trouble one way or another. The world is in terrible trouble, one way or another. I think I'll start with this article because I want to maybe maybe that's the context I want to tell it to you about. This is in Spirituality and Health magazine, and it's an article on the Harvard's big prayer study finally comes in, where uh, you know for years now there was a, there was a, a study at uh, Stanford, then there was a study at Harvard, with people praying for people who were undergoing heart surgery. And what they prayed about is they, they were given a list, you were given a name of a person to pray for every day in the prayer style of your choice. Uh, but, and all you knew was that person's name, uh, Joan X, and, you, and what hospital and what day their surgery was. And you prayed for them that they should have less complications. Because, you know, a person having heart surgery is already a sick person less complications and heal quickly. And there were three groups. There were the groups of people who knew they were getting prayed for. There were the people, group of people who didn't know they were getting prayed for, but they were getting prayed for. And there were a group of people who weren't getting prayed for who didn't know about the whole study. It turned out that the patients in the two groups who were uncertain of whether or not they were prayed for did almost about the same. They had 52% had complications after the surgery. Patients who knew they were being prayed for, 59% had complications. So that's backwards in terms of what you might expect. The researchers pointed out that their work did not question whether it helps to pray for oneself or one's friends or family. Maybe there's more of a connection. None of the patients knew people doing the praying or had asked to be prayed for. So these are interesting statistics. So I remember there was a big flurry some years ago, I can't remember what's his name, from the South Bay who was on TV all the time about prayer studies. Larry Larry Dossi. So I think it's up in the air about whether or not, I think it's always been up in the air about whether thoughts of people who don't know you, or even thoughts of people who do know you, how and if and when they're effective on the other person. People always ask that at meta retreats. I'm sitting around here all week sending good wishes to this one, the other one, this one, the other one. How do I know that they're feeling it? How do they know that they're getting it? I think we don't. I actually think that the principal practice is that I feel different if I am praying for people. I think it's a practice of both well, both mindfulness and metta, if you want to think about it. 
as I sit here and uh, listen to voices, some voices I know, some voices, voices I don't know, and this one says I'm thinking about so-and-so uh, and so-and-so, both of whom have metastatic cancer. I'm thinking of so-and-so who has dementia. I'm thinking of this one who has that. You listen to it one after another, and you realize, I realize anyway, I don't know what you realize, I realize you have to work to keep your heart relaxed about that because it's like a, a hard thing to hear. Like when you, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a different kind of a hard thing in a certain way than if you listen to the news. And they say 53 people were killed when this happened and 42 this happened, which is terrible to hear. And it hurts the heart and the mind to hear it. But you don't know them. And here we're sitting in a room and someone says, my mother has dementia. My sister has this. My friend Donna is sitting with her sister who's dying. It's very hard for the mind to stay balanced, not relaxed, just balanced in the um, uh, face of what absolutely is the fate of being a human being. The, 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 the three sights that the Buddha is said to have said, seen that started him on his whole search for how do we find happiness in the world, is he really went out, presumably in the, in the legend, but in, in some way, in a way that we all do, and notice old age, sickness, and death. And old age is, is the only one that's sometimes unoptional because sometimes it's young age, sickness, and death. But sickness and death for everybody, or death from everybody, sometimes accident and death, or something in death, sickness and death, but young age, old age, uh, accident or illness, but death for everybody. And how to be able to say everything that is dear to us will be lost to us or we to it at some point in this life. And how are we still going to embrace life passionately? You know, what? That, that's actually a line from the Buddha. Everything that is dear to us causes pain. And when I first heard it, I thought, no, 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 that's not true. You know, the things that are dear to me, that's what I like the best. That's what enriches my life. The numbers of people that I know love me is what keep me afloat. What do you mean everything that's dear to me causes pain? But in fact, everything that's dear to me has the potential of causing me pain because as soon as it's dear to me, it matters to me if something happens to it. When we sit here together... I'm sure it happens to you, and you hear a voice, and you don't know who it is. This is my father, my mother, my sister. And it's not your father, mother, sister, but you have them. So you know how that feels. And it's sitting in the, in the face of that, which I think is such a practice of keeping my heart open in that moment. Because then what's, what, what stays there, I think this is the way it works. If we do a practice that that uh, calls the mind to attention because you listen and it calls the mind to attention with not with um, with things that are, are, are painful things the dementia the cancer the this the that the that and the call is to stay present to it not to go to sleep or think about something else if you stay present to it with an open heart wishing it well not fighting with it which is what I'm sure we are doing when we are praying Whatever you're saying, you know, I hope they're better. I hope they can manage. I hope they do well. I hope today is all right for them. And the heart stays friendly. The mind stays balanced. I think what happens is that 
the fundamental wisdom that's innate in human beings, these that this is what's true about life. It is. It is. It it's time limited. We are vulnerable as people. These things happen, and I think that it isn't. I th I think that that wisdom doesn't preclude sadness, but it precludes agonizing about it. You know. So, Okay, this hurts me so much, but these things happen. The difference that the Buddha taught is the difference between, um, it's not the end of sadness, but it's the end of agonizing about things. It's the end of feeling this shouldn't be happening. Because actually suffering is the contention in the mind about what's happening. Suffering, there's a very particular use of the word suffering, and it's the translation of the Pali word dukkha. And it, you know, we use it sometimes interchangeably with pain. She suffered a lot. Sometimes people have a lot of pain but don't suffer a lot. It's the specific kind of suffering of the mind in contention with the moment that says, no, no, this shouldn't be happening. It is happening. And really what I think the Buddha was teaching in terms of mind trainings was not to numb the mind, or, but to be able to say, yes, this is what happens. This is what happens. I, I, I thought yesterday, I told somebody this story yesterday, you probably all know the story of the woman who came to the Buddha and said, uh, here my son has just died, please you have miraculous powers, restore him to life. And the Buddha said, I'll do it. He said, I'll do it if you bring me a mustard seed from, the home, from a home in which... Uh, there's never been a death. And so the woman rushes off and comes back soon after because, of course, there is no home that there's never been a death. I mean, not speaking about literally a house, but there is no, there's no possibility of a family of a home where there hasn't been a death. Death is ubiquitous. It visits everyone. And in the story, when it's usually told, it says the woman comes back, and bows to the Buddha and becomes his student and devotee because what has mollified her grieving heart has been the profound understanding that this happens to everyone. So I've always been touched by that story. It continues to touch me. And I told the person I was talking to yesterday, I want to add one line to the story. I want to add the line... She bows to the Buddha, she becomes a student and devotee, and then she and the Buddha sit down for a while and cry. That would be a good end for the story. I actually think it's implicit in the story, you know, and maybe it just comes down because of the scriptures and the culture of that time. And I think it's implicit. We can't, I can't imagine it another way. Um, and there are even Buddhist stories that do tell it the other way. There are a lot of, you know, Zen is a thousand years younger than the original scriptures. But there are two Zen stories. One where a Zen master's son dies and he sits and cries and cries. And his students concerned said, uh, didn't you teach us that the Buddha said everything that arrived, temporal, transient are all conditioned things that Everything that lives ultimately dies. Uh, isn't that true? Uh, and the uh, Zen master says, it is true. 
and I'm very sad. So that leaves room for it. The one that someone told me yesterday is another, yet another Zen master in that same situation whose students say, didn't you tell us all of life is ephemeral? It's like a dream. And the Zen master said, yes, it is. And this is a nightmare. <laughs> so what I am thinking about these days a lot is really recognizing in ourselves the, the way that the mind balances itself on wisdom, but all the while acknowledging the, the pain in the heart, the climate in the heart. I actually think it's the wisdom that keeps us able to stay present to life as it unfolds and the climate of the heart that gives us some clue about what to do. That when we're with somebody who's been bereaved, we can sit quietly and be present for them and in our body be consoling, in our vibe be consoling. I actually think for myself, it makes me less contentious. Just in general, if you look around and you think all of us are subject to this, Every per single person here has to go through grief and loss. We're sort of in a support group for the bereaved before the bereavement happened. You know, we would be very kind to people in our bereavement group, wouldn't we? If they'd had a loss. Well, first of all, we probably all have had significant losses. And we'll have a lot more before the end. Thinking for myself what happens to me is it makes my mind it makes my mind wiser because I have to listen, I have to stay present. I think right. It puts things into a proportion, into a perspective that makes more sense. In the perspective of what I am listening to, the pain in the world, my little pain in my little world is nothing. I'll work it out. You know. And from the, another point of view, my pain in my world is not separate from the pain in that world. It's like everybody's carrying around their private little end of this ocean of difficulty that we are all maneuvering around in. Uh, it's not a surprise. You know, the, the, you know, sometimes when people hear about the first noble truth, life being uh, shot through, really permeated with suffering. It sounds like Buddhists are very uh, uh, gloomy. But the truth is, I, I don't think it's gloomy. I think it's realistic. Uh, it does not mean that there isn't beauty and happiness and, uh, and uh, pleasure in uh, uh, new life and uh, uh, pleasure in creation itself, pleasure in art. I think to go from there to the, what, thinking about what the Buddha taught, in essence, were ways of keeping the mind as clear about what's true and what's important as it gets to be in those moments of heightened awareness more of the time. So that we sometimes, sometimes when someone has a, a, a when there's a tremendous catastrophe, everybody wakes up and focuses and gets nicer. Right? Remember about during the when the when the planes came into the World Trade Center, we're coming up to 9/11 right away. Planes came into the World Trade Center. So many people were saying, 
New Yorkers are looking at each other for the first time. They're smiling at each other in the street. People have opened the doors. People with uh, the running shoe stores gave away running shoes just for anybody who was going by because you can't walk 60 blocks in, in high heels or whatever you came to, to work in. People gave away ice cream and, and, and soda and food because people needed nourishment to get away. Suddenly people let go of what they thought was important and substituted what was really important, which was in that moment, we're all imperiled, we're one family. There's a certain way in which I think we keep forgetting that we're all imperiled, even when we're not in the middle of a calamity like that. And then we fall back into nonsense. Uh, I've, I've been listening to the ads, I told you this earlier, in my car, I had occasion to go back and forth, up and down to Geyserville a lot this week. So I listened to the ads on the radio, and at one point, there was a particularly distressing uh, news report about the fighting in South Lebanon, really upsetting news report, and they break and really dismaying because you don't know what are people going to do. And they break for a commercial, and then the commercial is two women's voices, and one says to the other, I can't believe how beautiful your toenails are. What did you do? And then they have this whole conversation about, I am using a certain, a certain foot product that has now cured my feet of their fungus. And, I, and this is right in between a continuing coverage of the world is about to blow itself up, and now we are talking about, you know, foot fungus and uh, I think people really, I, the, I, I read the newspaper yesterday, I always particularly read um, carefully on Tuesdays in case there's going to be something I want to talk about on Wednesday. And I read with some dismay about the, uh, uh, what's his name, who won the Tour de France this year? Landis. Landis. And it, you know, who may or may not have been doing some enhancement about his performance enhancement. And hearing the whole conversation, about, reading the whole conversation about it, say, well, you know, doping has been going on in the tour since before Lance Armstrong. And people are talking about, well, it's commonplace, so it's not a big deal. But it's common, if it's commonplace, it really is a big deal, you know. Um, and then they talked about how... Uh, uh, he came from a, comes from a religious family. I thought all the more sad, you know. That I thought about how one, not that not that it couldn't have happened. Everything happens to everybody. You know, you, you lose your temper, you forget. The ha fact of having a religious family doesn't make you immune to greed or uh, aggressive behavior. I mean, sometimes I think it's shocking uh, that news of people printed in newspapers that this or that clergy absconded with the community's money or misbehaved sexually. Nothing really protects you. Uh, in the moment that the mind gets um, confused. Because I'd like to think that it's that. I'd like to think that the mind gets confused and it thinks something is so important that it bends its own rules in order for fame or power. There's a very distressing ad. Have you seen this? Two women waiting 
at the bottom of a slide for children to come. Do you see this ad? It's on television. You see this ad? Two women at the bottom of a slide and uh, with young children coming down the slide. And uh, they're kind of good-looking women, all dressed up. And one says, uh, excuse me, I think Jacob, it was Jacob's turn next on the slide, her child. And the other person says, not anymore, it isn't, and pushes her child on. Is that, yeah, right. Ah, then, what do you think that's advertising, by the way? I mean, would you buy a product? <laughs> huh? It's a Hummer ad. It's a Hummer ad. It's an ad for, it's an ad for a car. Then you see this woman driving the car. So first of all, I think this is such bad advertising. Well, what worries me is, if it's bad advertising, it must be good advertising. It must be selling Hummers, otherwise they'd take it off the air. That's what's alarming about it. And that, and the, and you see this woman driving along in her Hummer with some background music about you go girl. And I think, wait a minute. <laughs> This is really upsetting. I mean, this is this is not about liberated women. This is about mean women, and this is this is about aggression, and it's another form of greed. I don't know. Probably CNN. We can write them. Huh? It was on five. You saw it on five. Probably everywhere. People should write the Hummer. They should go on Hummer. But, you know, it's so. But I think it's actually a reflection of what people are enjoying seeing, women talking sassy. I think, wait a minute, you know. Maybe I'm too old, but, you know, anybody talking sassy or muscling their way in and say, it's my turn. Uh, but I see, you know, one of, here's, a, here's another thing. I'll come back and teach from this little pamphlet on the Buddha in a minute. I want to just put this in because I, I, it was this week's New York Times. Um, a very long article about a an ongoing 50-year project of breeding rats. Uh, and after 60 generations of rats, they have rats who started from the same kind of, you know, they have rat genetics and the same species of rat. But they're nice rats and mean rats. And uh, there are rats where if, the, where if you come into the laboratory, they stick their little nose out of the cage, so you should pat them. And there are other rats where you can't open the door. They're aggressive, and they're, they've, they've become killer rats. And uh, it's called a five-decade project explores what makes animals and maybe human beings tame. So it raises a question of... Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm forming the question even. It's more and more now with genetic research, we are discovering that people do not get born the same. Anybody here ever had more than one child? <laughs> Who had more than one child? Who would like to agree that nobody gets born the same? Everybody comes with their package, and you get the same parents more or less with everybody. And everybody comes up different. They come with a pack of genes. Less and less, and I'm even a psychologist, I am thinking about the input of upbringing and more and more about what's coded into the genes. I'm just thinking about 
sometimes with despair and sometimes sometimes not. Um, I'm thinking more and more than that the the change for uh, maybe the imp I, I how do I want to say this that maybe the approach if uh, if a person's behavior like the woman on the screen uh, with the no no it's my turn it comes from a gene uh, if it comes from anything the only thing I think that will approach it would be teaching instruction rather than therapy how'd you get that idea it doesn't matter how you got that idea that's a non-functional idea in a society and it's going to ruin the world that idea so you have to have a better idea so, yeah you shared with us this the wisdom that keeps our wisdom within keeps us present so that the truth in our heart can direct us and you're mentioning this ad on television, which actually sounds to me like something for a psychotropic drug instead of a bullying kind of a vehicle. Yeah. And what do we do about it? How many of us are willing to send the email or write a note? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when, when there's so much that is so wrong, mm -hmm. and again and again we're looking at how do we keep our hearts from feeling so burdened that we are immobilized. See, and, and how do we get a government that is going to make judicious decisions in everyone's best interest and the best interest of our world? Don't we have to get mobilized enough to send those emails and those letters when we have that strong feeling inside? Isn't that the part B? Yeah, no, no, absolutely, Robin. And my uh, my sense is, you know, I don't know if there's a show of hands who's going to go home and write an email, but I hope you will. I hope you will. And to the television station. And vote. And get someone to register to vote. And tell your hairdresser you saw that ad. Get other people to know about it. One of the reasons for teaching is you tell people something, and they go tell some more people something, and they go tell some more people something. If we tell enough people, it'll start to get known. My, my thing... My, not my thing. One of the things that stays in my mind as uh, one of the guideposts for myself was an, actually a prayer that somebody sent me in my email on the day of 9-11, five years ago. And it said, um, I got, you all did get a whole email full of advice about what to do. And the, this one particular email said, um, pray for the people who died, pray for the people who left, be, left behind, and pray that your heart stays open. And that stays to me, it stays with me as the operative prayer for everything. That it, you know, pray for the XYZ, pray for everybody involved with it, and pray that your heart stays open. Because one of the things that, the thing that I think is the most difficult thing is to stay present to it with a clear mind so you can think, what should I do? Should I send an email to them? Should I march with the grandmothers? Should I write letters? Should I write another op-ed letter to the New York Times? Should I call CNN? What should I do? And I don't know the right answer of what should I do, but there are a lot of right answers of what should I do, probably all of the above. But my ability to do them depends on my being um, not angry at the world for having messed itself up.
It, that depends really on my ability to be not angry. Say, so, okay, this is what we've got. What a big mess. What can we do now? I think really I'm more and more thinking that that's the only way. I wanted to show you these little books. Well, let me show you these little books. I have three of them that I, partly because I found them this week and they're a rarity. I found them in the back of a closet. These are uh, Bodhi leaves, B-O-D-H-I. Uh, they're little, they're little like breviaries. They're little published uh, books. This was probably published. Let me see if it's got a date. They were published in Sri Lanka, in Kandy, in Sri Lanka, in 1976, uh, from the Buddhist Publication Society. And this is number uh, 73. This is number 190. This is number 67. And somehow along the line, a long time ago, I came by them and I've had them in a closet. They're little treatises by different people. Uh, this particular one by uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was Guy Armstrong's teacher, uh, was particularly interesting to me because it... it uh, I'll read you the beginning of it and you see if it's interesting to you. Vipassana meditation is mental training aimed at raising the mind to such a level that it is no longer subject to suffering. That's a great line, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have to read more than that. That is no longer subject to suffering. That does not get caught in greed, hatred, and delusion. It doesn't get caught in what it thinks it needs to make itself better. What to change the situation. It doesn't get caught in needing to have something else. So it stays clear-minded. That's a very total abbreviation of the Four Noble Truths. And we're going to look at them right away in this Paramita chart. The first is that life, by its very nature, is always changing. And so that our, since our experience is changing, there's a tendency to respond to it by wanting more or less or different. And it's the, and it's the imperative that things be different that actually is suffering. Although we could train a mind to not have that imperative. Very important to say at this point, that the mind could have the imperative to make a difference in the world, as Robin is saying. The imperative to act, but not an imperative to change what's now. You can't change what's now. What a, what a hubris it would be for me to think the world should be different now. I'd like it better if my mother-in-law, of blessed memory, used to walk out of the house. <laughs> it maybe be raining, and she'd say, just my luck, it's raining. And you think, it's such hubris to think that God has caused it to rain just on account of my mother-in-law needing to go somewhere. You know, we adjust the whole world to imagine that you are the center of it. Just my luck, it's raining. Look at that. Um, that for me to be able to know, to look at the world situation, which is terrifying now, and say, what a mess we have done. And if you listen to the, if you turn on the television and don't listen to the... Uh, voices for a while. You just turn it down, you see this, you're talking heads, you see them talking to each other. And then you turn and you listen to the voices. But everybody is right. It's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's their fault. It doesn't matter whose fault. Well, you're going to go back to next, last week, or six months ago, or 50 years ago, or 200 years ago, or 
At which point we're going to say, okay, this was the decisive point, and who misbehaved since then? That's what's the, we should get rid of them. They're the culprit. But then there'll be new people to be culprits. What will it take for everyone to say, wait a minute, that's not the point? Who was right? So how did so? Here we go. The need, the imperative, to have things different is what causes the pain in the mind. That it's possible to cultivate a mind that doesn't have that imperative, which would leave a person able to act in the world freely on behalf of all beings, which is really what the cultivation of the paramitas are, the, the uh, qualities of heart. I wanted to tell you just from this particular little treatise about the idea of uh, ten fetters. You know what a fetter is? A fetter is a restraint. It's, it's just a nice piece of uh, Buddhist psychology to know. The, the Buddha taught that there are ten things that keep the mind falling back into its habits of uh, confusion. It's really a habit of ignorance. And uh, uh, they, he said they don't fall away altogether. He said, but sometimes there's a moment in which the mind is so particularly clear, you really realize that everything is caused by, that everything is arising and passing away, that there's a stream of experience that comes in, that continues to arise and pass away, everything conditioned by everything else before and causing whatever comes after it, that um, suffering is the imperative to have things different from how they are. That particular realization that the mind sometimes suddenly knows with such keen clarity that it's transformed. And he said, that's the first moment of transformation on the path to enlightenment. Oh, I remember why I was going to teach this this morning. On the path to enlightenment, that's the first landmark about which which means that you're on your, really on your way. You can't slip back into total confusion, she said. You can make mistakes, but you can't, you can't go back to square one. You're already on square two as your starting place. And he said, what gets erased when you see clearly for whatever period of time when that really shift happens in you, what gets erased are the first three fetters that hold the mind. And the first of them, really the most important, is the sense of a personal I that remains. Now, I have a sense of I. I start most of my sentences with I. I went here, I went there, I did this, I did that. We use it, our grammatical structure is like that. One of my teachers, uh, Sri Punja in um, India, who was an Advaita teacher, and was very good at pointing people to the awareness of the specious nature of that sense of I, people would talk to him in dialogue and they'd say things like, I'm furious about that. And uh, Punja would say, where is the I that's furious? And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Sometimes people would get suddenly a very clear sense that what's actually true is in the moment, there's furiousness, but there's no one who owns it, who will later not own it when it's passed and something else is there. Furiousness is there. 
I have to tell you the side story from that is we, my husband went with me to India uh, in 1990 and we spent a month there and a lot of that Advaita talk about where is the eye and where is the eye and we came home and I reported to him sometime uh, soon after. We loved it. Sometime soon after some interchange that I'd had with one of our semi-grown children at the time. And I said, uh, I'm so annoyed at so-and-so for having done this and that. And he said, uh, where is the I that's annoyed? <laughs> so I felt annoyed at him. I, uh, yeah. I said, you know, don't give me any of that guff, you know. You and I both know that there's no permanent I here or there, but annoyance is present. So uh, really, that's really what it is. Annoyance is present, and sadness is present, and grief is present, and elation is present. This is a body, and uh, associated with it are feelings and emotions. What we mostly do is we perceive, or we seem to sense, that it's happening to someone, like there's a little person who lives in this body, who is looking out through this eyes and seeing and listening through these ears and hearing. And really, it's an organism that's operating in time and space with a very complicated brain so that it has memory and, and the ability to plan. It's a fantastic thing. But from moment to moment, you say, I'm furious, and then a few minutes later, you're happy. Where is the eye that was furious? You know, is the same is the same eye that seems to be happy now the eye that was furious then, or was furious present? Um, or you say, I have a pain in my knee. Am I the pain in my knee, or is the pain in the knee belong to some eye who's in here, or is it just pain in the knee that's gone later? The, so then people will say, well, so what's the point? So if there's someone there or someone not there. If it's empty of separate self, what's the difference? <laughs> My own sense is that it loosens the possibility of my identifying too much with passing mind states. Really, when something's happening and I really feel upset or angry or distraught, it's not so much of a sense that I own it. It's like a mind state that's visiting for a while. Nor do I have to take as much, um, I don't have to take it as a, as a moral flaw, you know, get really mad. I don't get mad much, but sometimes I do. And here we talk so much about anger as a toxin in the veins. It is, you know, it really distorts the vision. But sometimes, just as, just as all those Zen stories about sadness exist, anger exists sometimes. Something happens, anger comes up, and you get adrenaline, and it stays for a little while. It doesn't feel good. I actually feel like I got a flu when that happens. Generally, it doesn't happen very often. Generally, I stay home and I stay off the phone for a few days so I don't accidentally you know, contaminate anybody with my flu. And you wait till it passes because it's chemically inspired with adrenaline. And, and you fire it up with memory, how could he have said that to me? How could he have said that to me? How could I say? But if you, if you try not to do that, it passes. So it's easier for me not to identify with the mind states or to make the moral flaws and then have to do penance for them. It's actually easier for me to forgive other people. 
because I realized that there isn't a person in there who thought, hmm, I'm going to do this. Something happened with that person that caused some action to happen that hurt me. But nothing else could have happened in that moment. There's no, there's no one to blame. It actually does away with the whole idea of um, forgiveness. Because there's no one to forgive. It's really wisdom taking over in some way. The heart actually gets used to it. I think we use the word forgiveness functionally. Because you notice that what you're holding on somebody goes away after a while. But what, I think what I'm holding on somebody when I haven't forgiven them is I am attached to an opinion I have about them, a thought. Here comes so-and-so who once insulted me. Here comes so-and-so who once did something not nice to me. That the minute I let go of that story, I could have a few more stories about them. Here comes so-and-so who once insulted me, who also is a fun person to go hiking with who also, you know, is a, you know, a witty raconteur, who also likes the same opera that I do. And you can put a few more people. And so here comes a person that you then see as the whole person instead of the piece of story that you remember when you see them. I think we remember the piece of story because it comes somehow out of the limbic brain. The piece of story is what hurts us. And so, uh-oh, I have to be careful about this person. But that really is limbic brain. We have much more complicated brain on top of that. So that when the mind is relaxed, you say, yeah, this person did say that thing about me, but, you know, they were having a bad day. It's just what came up for them. They probably re regret it. This sense of a separate self. You know, I don't know. Some, sometimes people say if you know that you're not really there, then you know when you're dying that there's no one who dies, you die easier. You know that there's just collection of mind-body vitality stops being vital and then something else happens with it. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I didn't, you know, I didn't die yet. And the people that I'm with who are dying uh, lament that they, in advance of leaving their friends, and they don't know what's on the other side. And we lament that we don't know that, you know, however they are on what other side, if there's another side, they're not here in the same way that they used to be. So sadness exists. So I don't know. They say that the sense, not knowing that there's no one there makes it better, but not for me yet. Maybe it'll change. Mostly about forgiving people, it makes it better. The second fetter is the fetter of doubt that goes away, wavering, cause of wavering and uncertainty. Most importantly, doubt con concerning the practice leading to liberation from suffering, doubt due to inadequate knowledge, doubt as to what the subject is really all about, doubt as to whether this practice of breaking free from suffering is really the right thing for oneself, really whether it's better than other things, really whether or not it does any good. Whether or not the Buddha really did attain enlightenment, whether he really did achieve liberation, all of those doubts. This came up in a conversation with someone early this morning, actually, where we're talking about what's happening to, is it true? This is a discussion that happens in Dharma teaching circles. As Dharma has come to the West and become incorporated in mainstream life, actually, uh, is it watered down? Is this uh, another self-help? Are we learning just to live in our lives more comfortably? Uh, first of all, they can take the just out of that sentence. 
Are we learning to live in our lives more comfortably? Period. That would be great, you know. That would be great. Uh, are we um, willing to settle for living in our lives more comfortably much more of the time, but not having severed the ties to completely to greed, hatred, and delusion? Do we really believe that it's possible in this lifetime to have such clarity of vision that greed and hatred and delusion never again arise. I'm asking that in that sort of dramatic way because I'm asking myself. Because the question was, are we teaching uh, Dharma light? Or uh, are we teaching the liberation teachings of the Buddha? I think we're teaching the liberation teachings of the Buddha that I think have the potential of liberating. And what anybody does with it in this lifetime is what anybody does with it. Uh, and I think that the liberation teachings can be taught in very accessible ways. The third of the fetters that presumably falls away once you get to this first stage of enlightenment is what they call the belief in uh, superstition. The attachment to rules and rituals based on the misunderstanding of their real purpose. Essentially, it's a misguided attachment to certain things one does. Usually it has to do with doctrines and ceremonies. An example of this is a belief in magic and magical practices, which is blatantly just superstition and occurs even among Buddhists. This is not... This is, this is, but Adasa is not living now, but he re died recently. This is not a long time ago text. And when these first three are given up, you become a stream enterer. Which means that you have entered into the stream of enlightenment, that you can't fall back past where you are in terms of understanding. The first one is a belief in a separate self. You know, I am really not there. Um, you know, there's all those jokes. You probably have gotten a birthday card with a, with a Buddha opening a box, you know, with a monk opening a box, or the Buddha opening a box. Who has gotten this birthday card? Just what I wanted for my birthday, nothing. Yeah. But you know, actually, that it's, when you think about it, it's not a bad card. You know, it's a little bit mocking, you know, because it's mocking the emptiness theory. But imagine if you wanted nothing. Think about the, think about the line. Think about the 23rd Psalm. What's the first line of the 23rd Psalm? I shall not want. Now, the, what do you think? Because I think about that a lot. What do you think? What do you think? I have everything I need. Because it then goes on to say various ways in which the presence of the divine is, protect, is felt as a protection. But I'm thinking about, I, I like to think about this. Who knows what it's meant to, but I mean, we're all free to decide what it means to us. There's one way of thinking, 
the presence of the divine is available to me, so I feel always as if I'll have a comfortable place to lie down or uh, I'll, uh, I'll be comforted in my travail. Uh, I'll have a table spread before me. I'll have cool water because of the presence of the divine. It's also, I think, important. I, I think about it, about what would it mean not to want? And I'm thinking about that term want now in terms of imperative. You know, that the mind that's really relaxed and awake, but not needing to have something different. There's a gospel hymn that I, if I could remember the tune, I would sing. If I could remember all the words, I'd sing it too. But it, it, one, one of the verses is, you seek the world over, there's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. And something, something gold and silver don't last and they disappear. The richest person with all the gold and silver, that doesn't last. But the only thing that lasts is a satisfied, could last is a satisfied mind. And in the end, the, uh, you know, and when, I, when this world is finished for me and I pass over into whatever I'm going to meet, I'll meet that next world with a satisfied mind. So, I, also, Susan, I was remembering you just when my cup runneth over. Uh, one of my friends recently pointed out to me that um, Kosi Rivaya, which is translated as my cup runneth over in the King James Bible, is not exactly an accurate translation, that the more accurate translation is my cup is sufficient. It's full. You don't need it to run over. You only need it to have... You know, <laughs> the, the, just enough. Susan. Well, you started off talking this morning about what is sufficient and feeling what is sufficient. I'm feeling like now that I have more than sufficient. I mean, like just trying to get... Kind of lighten up what I have. I'm having a really hard time getting rid of things and simplifying things. I mean, I, I, I mean, I never have sufficient. I have too much. Well, actually, I think it's, well, there, there are two things, and it's five minutes to eleven. And how do I know anyway? But what I'm thinking about, because on a material level, I probably have too much also. And I'm thinking of my, my, my uh, I have enough, uh, my, cup is, my cup is sufficient, probably means even if I should do a big house cleaning and give half of it away, I'm all right with it until I don't, you know, that nothing is a problem, that, that things are, things are uh, uh, nothing, is a, nothing has to be a challenge or a problem. It's a thing, oh, look at this, I have all this stuff, okay. Uh, I want to. I, I did. We give out these things. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna have to give you a homework. How many of you are planning to be here next week? Bring your homework with you. Bring that pizza. If you're not coming next week, put it up on your refrigerator. Study it. Bring it when you do come. We're gonna use it as a text next week, and we'll go through it one by one and talk about it and see if. And we'll do it in little groups because I talked too much today, but. Uh, I really what I want to, if, if there's a particular point that I am aiming at, and I think it's this, that uh, I think that the fundamental thing that we are trying to do in this spiritual practice, in any spiritual practice, 
is trying to wake up the mind so that it sees clearly what's going on. Like when, if we go back to when we said prayers, and we said, oh dear, all this pain in the world. Prayers for personal people, prayers for whole groups of people hurting each other in the world. Prayers for the planet and what's going on in the world. That what we're really trying to do is to be able to look clearly, see what's happening, say, oh dear, it's not going well. And to have the heart to really want to make it different. And the composure to be able to figure out how. To be able to do all of that without getting mad at it. That, that particular point, and really the reason that the paramitas seem so important to me is uh, I think that it happens naturally. Uh, sometimes my, I, I think I've told you this, my husband will tease me, he'll say, so, so, after all these years of practice, uh, all this meditation, what's it done for you? And, you know, it's not, uh, you know, he's not being sassy, and, you know, he actually knows it's good for me. He's not trying to prove It's just a conversation, you know. People have to talk about something, so, you know. But, so, and we, and we recycle that one every once in a while, and I'll say, uh, well, I'd be, you know, because you still, he'll say, point out, you still do X or Y or Z, or you still have anxieties about this or that and the other, and I do. Uh, I said, well, I got kinder. I got kind. And he said, well, you were always kind. And I said, I got kinder. And that actually is true. I got kinder. I am less tolerant of my own uh, tendency to back off in anger or any kind of petulant emotional disconnect from what's going on. I'm less, I'm less prepared to let myself abandon myself or the world. And I think that that's the important piece. And the paramitas are about connecting with the world. And I think that we're doing this practice in order to stay more connected, not less. I think it's a mandate for connection. Take a breath. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 2, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.